0: Good morning, everyone. It's great to be back with you this morning. My name is Dan. I am our young adults pastor and get to serve on our preaching team. But I have been out for most of the summer on a sabbatical and just now getting back into the swing of things. So if you started coming to PVC over the course of the summer, we probably haven't met yet. But I would love to meet you. So please do. Come say hi after the service, or I'll be over at the picnic afterwards chasing around my three little boys. Uh, We have kids two, four, and six years old, which going into our sabbatical, we had some real question about how much rest you could get with kids two, four, and six. Um, But we did definitely uh, get the the kind of rest that we could and uh, made a lot of really great family memories over the summer. Um, So, super glad to be back with you here this morning continuing our series in the book of Acts. Uh, I was told before I left that we were going to be looking at the sermons in Acts this summer. Does that sound right? Yeah, nobody knows. Okay, perfect. Sorry, Paul. Uh, sorry, Scott. I'm sure that there was uh, some, something from this summer that you can remember. Yes, we were, in fact, looking at the, the sermons in the book of Acts, and we're going to be looking at our final sermon today, chronologically in Acts. Acts 26 we will be there in just a moment. Uh, But before we jump into that, I want to uh, start thinking a a little bit about the idea of longevity. This has been on my mind because one of the purposes of a sabbatical is to promote longevity, to be able to help uh, people sustain a life of ministry over the long haul, not just in short spurts. And there's a lot of things that can threaten longevity for, for pastors or for others. Uh, for a pastor, it could be an, a, a really difficult experience in a church. Uh, some some pastors go through that, and that ends up cutting their time in ministry short. Um, for, for others, uh, probably a, a, a very common reason would just be burnout. Burnout, is, it's a word that gets thrown around in our culture a lot, and I have to be honest, uh, for a while I just thought it was something that was kind of Uh, and a word that was created by millennials so you didn't have to work quite so hard. Uh, It's not the case, though. Burnout is a real thing, and it actually is defined in the APA Dictionary of Psychology as follows. Burnout is physical, emotional, or mental exhaustion accompanied by decreased motivation, lowered performance, and negative attitudes towards oneself or others. Burnout is the result of elevated levels of stress, not, not just like one stressful moment, but like a, a lot of stress over a long period of time, oftentimes accompanied by inadequate rest and perhaps like a heavy emotional burden. Uh, and so you see, burnout is especially common among people who are like in the helping professions. Think of uh, social workers or therapists who are in the trenches with people while they're, while they're processing their own trauma or maybe experiencing their own trauma. And, and even that kind of shared trauma by people in those professions and sometimes by pastors is something that can lead to burnout. Uh, we can experience burnout in, in our workplaces, though, as well. If you find yourself in, in a work situation or a relational situation or something like that that produces these high levels of stress for long periods of time, Uh, This is something that can lead to burnout. And so a sabbatical or a a break is something that can help promote longevity and prevent or heal from burnout. I want to think together with our time this morning about a slightly different kind of burnout that I wonder if some of us have experienced, or perhaps one day some of us would experience. I want to call this missional burnout. Missional burnout missional burnout is something that could happen if you have been praying for a family member or a friend who doesn't know Jesus that they might come to know the Lord and you've been praying for years and years and years, and it doesn't feel like this person is any closer to knowing the Lord or you might experience this kind of burnout if you've just been walking with Jesus for for a long time for, for decades and, and it doesn't feel maybe as exciting as it used to and you're just kind of wondering what's going on and if, if you really want to kind of keep putting in the effort and the energy to be sharing your faith. Or, or perhaps uh, this kind of missional burnout could come just from kind of being in our culture, being in your workplace or your community and feeling like, oh, if I, if I even think about sharing my faith, that makes me stressed out because I'm worried about what people might think about me the kind of prejudgments that they might make of me, right? the things that they might kind of tack on to me because of my faith. And just that elevated level of stress could lead to a kind of missional burnout. And the result of missional burnout might be that we, we stop praying for that person that we've been praying for. Or, or we settle for just being nice, but not really being salt and light. Now, it's much easier to be nice than it is to really be salt and light. But as we look at this sermon that Paul gives, it's not quite a sermon. It's more of a defense that he makes while he's on trial. But if we look at this speech that Paul gives in Acts 26, we might wonder if Paul might be experiencing some emotional uh, or some, some missional burnout. I mean, after all, he's been following Jesus for some 25 years by this point. He's been through a whole lot in that time. He writes about it elsewhere. He's been beaten, he's been persecuted, he's been shipwrecked, all of these things. And and we might be wondering if after all this time, he's just experiencing a little missional burnout. Like like maybe now now I'm on trial, my life is at stake, and and I just wanna try to kind of coast through this. But what we're gonna see as we look at his speech in Acts chapter 26 is that Paul is not burned out. He is not burned out on the mission that God has sent him on. In fact, Paul is experiencing a season of longevity. And as he's on trial, we're gonna see him defending not just himself, but defending the gospel. And and as we look at the way that Paul goes about his defense in this chapter, we're gonna pick up some things along the way that helped Paul get to where he was. And we're gonna think about the things that we might be able to do to help us prevent missional burnout, to help us have a a period of longevity in our commitment to mission and to ministry. So we're gonna be looking uh, at this this speech in Acts 26. Now, just to set the context a little bit before we look at the speech itself, Paul, like I said, is on trial. Uh, His trial started several chapters ago. He first is on trial before the Jews. They want to kill him, but they don't have the authority to do that. They turn him over to the Romans. uh, And he's already been tried by the Roman governor, Felix. Since then, a few years have gone by. There's a new governor in place. His name is Festus. And Paul has appealed to be tried by Caesar himself. So he's going to be sent to Rome for this trial. But Festus, he doesn't totally understand exactly what has happened. So he wants to hear from Paul his side of the story. He invites Jewish king Herod Agrippa to come and listen as well. So you have Paul making his case before Herod Agrippa and before this uh, Roman governor, Festus. And so Paul's comments, his speech, start in Acts 26, verse 2. Let's look there at what he says. says, I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I am going to make my defense today against all of the accusations of the Jews especially because you are familiar with the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. So Paul has some common ground with King Agrippa. They're both Jews. As a Jew, Agrippa knew the Jewish law. He knew Jewish customs. He knew Jewish culture and religion. And so Paul recognizes there's some, some common ground that he has here. And so he, he appeals to Agrippa on account of this common ground. He says, would you please hear me out? Would you please listen to me patiently while I make my case? And he goes on. As Paul starts to make his case, we're gonna say he begins by looking at his past. He says in in verse four, my manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known it for a long time if they are willing to testify that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee, and now I stand here on trial because of my hope and the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? So Paul starts his defense here by recounting some of his past says, hey, they all know, all these Jews know that I was raised up in the strictest sect of our religion, that I was a Pharisee. Paul talks about this elsewhere as well. This was a part of his identity, who he was before Christ. He was a Pharisee. But for Paul, something changed. That that now he recognizes as he's on trial, that he no longer sees things as he used to, and it's this idea of the resurrection, specifically the resurrection of Jesus, that for Paul was the turning point. So he's different than he used to be. And yet, as his, te- as his defense continues, he still wants to go back and talk a bit about his, uh, his life before Christ. So he does that here in verse nine. It says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, And in part, he's just recounting the story of what got him to where he was. But this part of his story that he recounts, I find very interesting. Because this is a part of his story that I imagine that, that Paul would not be very proud of. Right? He's talking about the way that he used to persecute and even kill followers of Jesus. I imagine that that for Paul... <laughs> This is something that he wished was not a part of his past. That's something that now that he he is a follower of Jesus, he wishes that he had not done. And yet he starts by recounting this part of his past. And what we see as Paul does this is that part of what was helpful in Paul achieving longevity in ministry was his ability to look back to his past and own it. To recognize this was me this was who I was, this is what I did, and to trust God with that. Because now as he's on trial, as he's able to tell his story of where he went from to where he is now, he's able to see how God used that part of his story and how God is using that part of his story to help in the proclamation of the gospel. So, so part of what has allowed Paul to, what, to get to where he is in ministry, 25 years into following Jesus and still proclaiming the gospel is to look back to his past, to own it and to trust God with it. And that's gonna be an important thing for us to do as well if we want to have a life of longevity in mission and in ministry. We need to be able to look back to our past to recognize all of the things that we've done all of the things that have been done to us to own that and to trust that God is going to use that. Earlier this summer, my summer started off down in Southern California where I was taking a class at Talbot School of Theology It's part of a a grad program that I'm working on there. And this was the third of three summers that I needed to be down there for uh, two weeks with the same cohort of students. The the program I'm doing is on spiritual formation and soul care. And as a part of that, especially at the beginning of the program, we did a lot of kind of looking back to our pasts, looking back to our stories. And one of the tools that we used to do this was called a family sculpture. So uh, the assignment was to create a scene using your classmates that represented what it was like to be in your family when you were 10 years old. So you would take a few of your classmates, you would kind of describe the scene to them, and then you would set them up in in kind of this still. And it was supposed to depict a little bit about what it was like to be you when you were 10 years old. So one of my classmates asked me if I would be a part of his family sculpture. I was happy to do it. Um, And he said, okay, I'm going to have you play me. That was a little interesting because everybody else in the class acted as themselves in their own family sculpture but he wanted me to be him. Then he begins to describe the scene. And he said, what I want you to do is I want you to curl up in a ball on the floor. I want you to look like you're protecting yourself and like you're terrified because you know that the moment your dad or your older brother walks to the door, you're gonna get beaten. Just like you did every day. That was his life. That was his childhood. It was a hell of a childhood every day. And so he depicts this scene for the class, and everybody is just struggling with this, with the emotional weight of this. And he kind of unpacks it a little bit, talks about what his family was like, and then someone asked him at the end, you know, why did you choose to not play yourself in that story? And he said, because I promised myself according to where I was, that I would never be that kid again. And you know, what he didn't mean is that I'm going to pretend that part of my past wasn't there. He he wasn't saying that that I've moved on and I never want to think about it anymore. Rather, what he was acknowledging is that his life had changed, that he's actually not that boy anymore. See, because when he was in college, he met some people who introduced him to Jesus. And he began to believe in Jesus and walking with Jesus. He began to experience healing in that part of his life and in many parts of his life. He went on to plant a church and now he was 20 years into this church plant, pastoring a church of thousands of people. And here he is able to talk about how God took this part of the story that, that no doubt he wished was not a part of his story. But he was able to take that, to own it and say, that's me, that, that, that's who I was, that's what was done to me. And then to trust that God was going to use that. And you could see how God had used that to bring him to a, a place of compassion for others who are suffering in a way that he couldn't have been otherwise. To, to develop a level of resilience in him that is just uncommon in people who haven't suffered in that way. He was able to own his past and to trust God with it. And that's what we need to be able to do if we are going to have longevity in mission and in ministry. We need to be able to look back to our past, including all of the things that we wish we hadn't done and all of the things that we wish hadn't been done to us and say, that's me. That's a part of me. That's made me who I am. And then to be able to trust that God is going to use that. Romans 12, 1, it tells us to present ourselves to God. And, you know, sometimes as we think about doing that, about presenting ourselves to God, we, we might be tempted to present kind of a picture of ourselves that we wish were true, right? That, that picture of ourselves that doesn't include those things that we wish we hadn't done, that doesn't include those things that we wish hadn't been done to us. And so we kind of, we filter out those parts and we say, God, God, here I am. And then we come into community with other people and we do the same thing. And we present this version of ourself and it's not really who we are, but it's who we wish we were and we say, here I am. But the problem with that is that this projection of yourself can't really be loved by other people, by God, because that's not you. That's fake, that's false, but your real self all of you, all of your experiences, all of your actions, everything that you've been through, that is who you are. And when we can bring that into community with each other and we can bring that before the Lord, what that does is it it frees us from having to to be constantly creating these projections. Because you know what, that's an exhausting path. And if we try down that road to clean ourselves up before we bring ourselves into community, before we bring ourselves before God, that is going to burn you out. That is going to catch up with you eventually. You can't sustain that for the long haul. So if you're gonna be in this discipleship to Jesus and this life of mission for the long haul, we need to be able to look back at our past, to own it, say, that's me. Here's how it's broken. Here's how I'm broken. Here's how God is redeeming me. And then trust that God is going to use that for his glory and for our good. And we see Paul doing this. As he's on trial, he's talking about this part of his past that he wishes wasn't there, but it's who he is, and he lays it out there, and he says, this this is what I did, this is who I was. But we know that as Paul is even speaking this, that is who he was, but it's not who he is anymore. That something has changed for Paul, something profound has changed for Paul, and he wants to talk about that next. So he goes on in verse 12. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. This is the moment that Paul's whole life changed because this is the moment when he realized that Jesus really was who he said he was, that he had risen from the dead because he was in fact the Messiah, the son of God and the savior of the world. So in this moment, Paul, whose name was Saul, soon to be changed, his whole life changes, the trajectory of his whole life changes. And God wants to to tell him a little bit about where it's going. And so he gives him these instructions. He gives him a mission, a commission in verse 16. He says, but rise and stand upon your feet for I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And we could spend a, a whole hour just camped out on those three verses, this mission that, that Jesus gives to Paul in that moment. But what I want us to think about is the way that this call that God gave to Paul sustained him in the rest of his ministry. You see, because here in Acts 26, towards the end of his life, Paul is still living out faithfulness to that mission, that calling that God had given him. And I think that's what allowed Paul to push through those difficult times to move through all the challenges that he experienced. He was able to look back and say, but this is what God made me for. This is what God has appointed me for. This is the task that God has given to me. And he sent me out to do this. So it's Paul's knowledge of his calling that allows him to experience this kind of longevity and to to avoid burnout. And I think we need the same thing. If we are going to have longevity in our mission and ministry, we also need to be able to discern our call. What is it that God has called us to do? What is it that God has called you to do? Now, that's, that's a little bit of a, a difficult question, is it not? How do we know what God has called us to? How do we know what exactly it is that God wants us to do? But you know, 90% of the answer to that question can just be found in the pages of this book that this gives us so much of God's plan for our lives, so much of God's call on our lives. And we see that a lot of it is not much different than what God called Paul to. Because the first thing that Jesus does on that road to Damascus is, is he reveals himself to Paul and he calls him to himself. And God will also call us to himself, to be known by him, to be loved by him, to place our faith in him, to believe in him. In addition to to being called to God, we're also called to become like Jesus. We're called on on this path of formation by the Spirit becoming more and more like Jesus day by day, year by year. We're called to to be formed into the image of Christ. And just like Paul, we are called to go out on mission. We are called to go out and, and to share our faith. to to share the gospel, to proclaim the gospel with those who do not yet believe in Jesus. And if we were to just spend our lives trying to do those things, that could fill up all of our time, right? There's a lot there that we can spend a lifetime trying to do. But also there's decisions that need to be made. What job am I gonna take? What career am I gonna do? What, What school am I gonna go to? What community am I gonna place myself in? Well, what, is, what is my family gonna look like? What are my relationships gonna look like? All of these questions that we might have and, and we wanna know, God, God, what do you want me to do in this situation? What is your calling on my life in kind of a more concrete, more particular sense? And the interesting thing is that while, while God gives us a lot on kind of this general call that applies to everybody, He gives us some really concrete things. I think he gives us a lot of freedom when it comes to figuring out some of those things that are more particular and more unique to us. Maybe you remember the the parable of the minas. It's in Luke 19, similar to the parable of the talents that shows up elsewhere, a little bit different. You have a nobleman who is gonna be going away on a journey. He's got a lot of money, so he gathers 10 of his servants, and he gives them each 10 minas, which would have been about two and a half years of wages. And it's very clear that he's expecting them to, to do something with this. He's expecting some kind of a return when he comes back. But what's interesting about this parable is the only instruction that, the, that this nobleman gives to his servants is to engage in business while I'm gone. That's what he tells him. He gives him all this money and he says, engage in business while I'm gone. He doesn't tell them what kind of business. He doesn't tell them exactly what they're supposed to do. He gives them some resources and says, go engage in business, Put this to work so that when I come back, there's something to show for it. And I think the lesson for us in that parable is that that is what God does for us. Right? By and large, he, he gives us his spirit, he gives us resources, and he says, go and engage in business. Right? Do with this what you would. There's a lot of freedom there. And we're walking with the spirit, and we're, and we're trying to discern, we're in conversation with the Lord. But there's also a lot of freedom for us to choose. There's a lot of different paths that we could take that could fall within God's will for us. And that's part of the adventure of following Jesus with the spirit saying, God, I know that you have called me to yourself. I know that you have called me to become a person of love. I know that you have called me to share the gospel, but let's figure out together how we're gonna do that. And I think Paul had to do this also. I mean, God gave him more than probably most of us feel like we have. He says, you are gonna be the apostle to the Gentiles. You are gonna be the one who takes the gospel and shows the world that this is not only meant for Jews, but it's meant for all people. But where does he start? Where does he go? What does that look like? Paul goes out on three different missionary journeys. He's got to decide where to go, he's got to decide how long to stay there, he's got to decide who to bring with him, he's got to decide what the strategy is when this, in, in that city when he gets there. God doesn't give him all of that. There's still an incredible amount of freedom and agency that Paul has in that. And for us, the same is true. There's an incredible amount of freedom and agency that God gives us in figuring out how it is that we will go about engaging in business for the kingdom. How it is that we will take the resources that God has given us and and build a life, build a community, build build a ministry, build a business, whatever it may be, and have opportunities to share the gospel in that. To, to, To travel down that road of discipleship to Jesus in all of these different venues of our life. I think Paul owned that process and it was his commitment to the general call to mission coupled with the particular way that he lived that out that allowed him to experience the kind of longevity that he experienced. And I think the same will be true for us. If we get the big stones right, this call to, to, to believe in Jesus, to come to him, to become like him and to share the gospel with others and then figure out with the Lord, what exactly does that look like? That's gonna create a path towards sustainability and longevity in ministry and mission. But for Paul, there was a little bit more to the story and there's a little bit more to his defense. As, as he goes on, he's gonna talk more about how, how you know, all of the things that he's said and done in this path of discipleship to Jesus and this path of mission, it's all been consistent with things that the prophets have said that, that, that we can read in the Old Testament. And, and so this is why he, he's confused why people don't believe that Jesus could be raised from the dead. He's like, you can see glimmers of it all throughout the Old Testament. And when he starts talking about Jesus being raised from the dead again, Festus cuts him off. He's like, man, you are, you're not making sense. You're talking crazy talk. And Paul says, no, no, no. What I'm saying is totally true and it's totally rational. And then he looks to Agrippa, the Jewish king, and he says, you know what I'm talking about, right? I mean, you believe the prophets. You know what I'm saying. And here's how King Agrippa replies in verse 28. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God, not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. That's my favorite verse in this whole chapter, right? He's laid out his defense He's been appealing to Agrippa and his Jewish heritage. And he says, I mean, you, you're tracking with me, right? Like, you, you know what I'm talking about. And Agrippa's like, are you really expecting me to become a Christian, like, right here? Like, maybe, maybe you've had that response when you've shared the gospel with someone. And, and, and Paul says, I mean, I'd be cool with that. But, like, if it's not today, that's okay. right? Whether it's short or long, doesn't matter. Whether it happens right now, whether it happens tomorrow, whether it happens next year, whether it happens in 20 years, Paul says, I don't really care. What's important to me, what I want more than anything else, what I pray to God for is that you and everybody who can hear this testimony would become as I am, a believer of Jesus. Except for these chains. If you could like take these chains off, that would be nice. But aside from that, he says, I hope that everybody can become like me. But he wasn't in a rush. He wasn't in a hurry. I think we see here Paul's ministry is characterized by patience and perseverance. Patience and perseverance. You know, earlier in in Acts chapter two, Peter preaches this sermon and 3,000 people come to believe. Like that day, amazing, fast, instant growth. Here Paul is having a conversation with two people. One of them is like, do you expect me to believe today? That's okay. That'd be great. It doesn't have to be today. Paul was patient. He was in it for the long haul. And he was committed to praying that the people in his life who don't know Jesus would come to know Jesus. I wonder if you have people in your life that you've been praying for, for some time. Maybe months, maybe years, maybe decades. I know that you do. I know that you do because you text in these prayer requests so we can be praying for them. Prayers that your children who've walked away from the Lord would come back to faith. Prayers that your parents who don't know the Lord would come to know the Lord. Prayers for in-laws, for siblings, for coworkers, for neighbors. We have people in our lives that we have been praying for for years sometimes. Could we have a kind of gospel patience and perseverance? One that says, you know what? I hope it happens today. Sure, I hope it happens today. But whether long or whether short, whether today, whether next year, whether in 10 years, what I hope for, what I pray for, and what I will commit to pray for is that these people will come to know Jesus, to experience the life that I have in him, the joy that I have in him, the peace that I have in him, the forgiveness that I have in him. Could we commit to the long game? Could we commit to the long haul? Paul was, and it fueled him forward. It drove him forward in ministry. And if that's our posture, if we could have that kind of patience coupled with that kind of perseverance, I think the Lord will work in that to give us longevity for the long road ahead in mission and in ministry. And so as we get ready to, to sing again together, I wanna to give us just a moment to pause. You can just kind of close your eyes and think for a moment. Maybe even as I was talking about uh, praying for people who don't know the Lord. Maybe there was someone who came to mind. You're like, yeah, this is, this is the person that I'm praying for. If no one came to mind, just, just kind of search your life, search your soul, see if the Lord would bring someone to mind who, who he might invite you to make a commitment to praying for as a first step, that they too might become as you are, that they might become disciples of Jesus. Let's just take a moment to lift these people to the Lord. Lord, I know that that those of us in this room find ourselves on all different places on our journey with you. Some of us are, are, still asking questions that are unanswered and we're not really sure what we think of of church or of you. Some of us have been walking with you for many decades and everywhere in between. And Lord, wherever we are this morning, we just want to offer ourselves to you, our real selves. Lord, this is who we are. And we pray for those people that you've placed on our mind who don't know you. Lord, we ask, whether it be long or short, that they could come to experience the life in you that we've known. That they too could become worshipers of you. Lord, because you are worthy. You are worthy. Lord, you have given your son to us. You have showed us what it looks like to love and to sacrifice. You have given us life and we've tasted of it. Lord, I pray that you would sustain us for the road ahead and that you would invite us moment by moment, day by day into a deeper relationship with you of loving you, being loved by you and worshiping you. We do that in this place.